Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. This Behind the Curtain podcast was recorded with a large Zoom audience on November 19th, 2020, and focuses on the journey of author Lisa C.'s great-grandfather, Fong C., who overcame obstacles at every step to become the 100-year-old godfather of Los Angeles's Chinatown, the patriarch of a sprawling family, and the inspiration for an opera called On Gold Mountain. Lisa C. and composer Nathan Wong join Li Wei Yang, curator of the Pacific Rim Collections at the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens, for a conversation with music exploring C.'s Chinese immigrant family's extraordinary history and impact upon Los Angeles, and how his story went from page to opera stage. The three will be joined by soprano Shauna Blakehill, an original cast member of On Gold Mountain, and violinist Shelley Wren. We are delighted to share that On Gold Mountain will be produced in the newly expanded exquisite Chinese gardens of the Huntington Library Art Museum and Botanical Gardens during the spring 2021-22 season. Good evening, my name is Li Wei Yang. I'm the curator of Pacific Rim Collections at the Huntington Library Art Museum and Botanical Gardens. It's a pleasure for me to be part of this evening's program with my fellow presenters, Lisa C. and Nathan Wong. Earlier this year, through the generosity of Leslie Leon, the Huntington received the donation of the Gilbert, Florence, and Leslie C. Leon collection. As some of you may know, Lisa C.'s book, On Go Mountain, was partly based on this important collections consisting of rare and historical materials, documenting Fang C.'s journey as an early Chinese immigrant in the United States. As a curator at Huntington, I'm always looking for opportunities to diversify the Huntington's holdings by adding more Asian American collections, such as the Gilbert, Florence, and Leslie C. Leon collections. And this is a truly spectacular collection that offers a unique perspective from one of the most prominent Chinese antique merchants and families in early Los Angeles. I'm also very excited that the opera on Gold Mountain will be adapted and performed in the Huntington's newly expanded Chinese garden next year. Before our conversation with Lisa and Nathan, I would like to give a broad overview of the history of the Chinese here in the United States by showcasing some of the Huntington's rare holdings. So it is generally known that the California gold rush and the construction of the transcontinental railroad in the 19th century brought over a large number of early Chinese migrants into the United States. But prior to the gold rush, a small number of independent Chinese contract workers had already made their way to North America. This contract labor between American businessmen, Jacob Lees and I Chinaman was signed in 1849. I was contracted to work in San Francisco as a tailor for three years at $15 a month. And that his steamship passage, his lodging and his meals were covered by the employer as long as that he fulfills the term. During the early frontier days, California suffered from severe labor shortage and some American businessmen saw opportunities in importing Chinese workers to fill the need. And while this type of contract labors was a major source of foreign workers in Cuba and parts of South America, it never took off in meaningful numbers here in California, mainly due to the difficulties of enforcement and abolitionist aversion to indentured servitude. In the early 1850s, thousands of Chinese migrants made their way into the gold fields of Northern California. This demographic change motivated Euro-American miners to start pushing for legislations to exclude the Chinese. 
As a result, one of the first state-sanctioned laws was the Foreign Miners Tax Act of 1850, which targeted those who were not Americans, uh, but it was eventually repealed and modified to target the Chinese only. And so this 1853 document is a translation of the Foreign Miners Tax Act into the Chinese language and posted it in places where Chinese miners were most uh, heavily represented. It asked each Chinese miners working in the gold fields to pay $4 each month for the right to engage in mining. One study uh, estimated that the average earning of a Chinese miners at the time was anywhere between $15 to $20 a month. This was a hefty fee that drove many Chinese out of the gold fields. From 1850 to the 1880s, a flurry of municipal, states, and federal laws aimed at marginalizing the Chinese began to materialize and culminated in the congressional passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the first federally enacted immigration restriction in the history of the United States. While passports is a required document for international travel today, this 1882 Chinese passports serve a special purpose during the time when most travelers were not required to carry documents for international travel. Because the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act forbade the entry of Chinese laborers, there remained a small class of Chinese travelers whom the US government allowed to come into the country including merchants, students, teachers, uh, missionaries, diplomats, and, and travelers. And so this passport was issued by the Chinese government to ensure that the wealthier and the elite Chinese were allowed entry into the United States. Subsequently, the international standardization and the universal adoption of passports did not start until the end of the First World War. Before the expiration of the 1882 Exclusion Act, which was designed to last for 10 years, Congress passed the 1892 Geary Act that not only extended the original Exclusion Act, but added more provisions and clarifications. One notable addition uh, is the requirement that all Chinese residents in the United States need to be issued a certificate of residence in order to prove their legal residence here in the country. Any Chinese national caught without it would be arrested, jailed, and face possible deportation. Over the years, the certificate of residence evolved to become a precursor to the green car system that we have today. During the Chinese exclusion years, immigration attorney played a vital role in sustaining the Chinese community. Initially, most attorneys were white, but in 1923, Yu Chang Hong passed the California State Bar, becoming one of the first Chinese attorneys in the United States. This surprised not only his fellow USC law students and, and, and professors, that many newspapers covered this story. Since most established law firms at the time were not going to hire eight Chinese attorneys, YC set out to focus on Chinese immigration. He established his first office in Los Angeles' Old Chinatown, and when Old Chinatown was partially demolished for Union Station, he relocated his office to New Chinatown, where his office became a way station for many immigrants coming into the country. Today, the Huntington have preserved YC Hong's entire legal case files, numbered at over 7,600 cases, ranging from 1925 into the late 1960s. The major majority of these cases are about Chinese American men trying to bring over their wives and children into the United States. One such immigration case is the Hom Ark file, which lasted from 1938 to 1939. Chinese American citizen Han Shui was petitioning to bring his Chinese-born son Hom Ark into the US uh, which is, is allowed under the Chinese Exclusion Act. 
However, immigration inspectors uh, disputed his son's age by arguing that his bone structure did not correspond to his actual age by about three to four years. YC Hong countered by enlisting medical doctors to say that radiography of the bone or x-ray was never proven to be an accurate predictor of a person's age, which is true. The case was first denied by the Immigration Bureau, followed by a federal court appeal filed by YC Hong on behalf of his client. However, the client ultimately lost the case and was presumably deported back to China. Since most Chinese migrants passing through immigration inspection for the first time had to go through a lengthy interrogation, uh, coaching paper became an essential document. A typical interrogation would consist anywhere from 200 to, th to 300 questions about one's family situation, family history, and the layout of one's uh, village. Chinese migrants also had to memorize a great deal of tedious information, such as the full names of one's neighbors, uh, the number of oxen owned by close relatives, the location of the communal toilets in the village, um, and more questions like that. So this information is then recorded and reconciled with the answers given by one's Chinese American father. This was a way to catch any inconsistencies in their testimonies. And because a typical steamship journey from Hong Kong to San Francisco can take at least 30 days or even more, Chinese migrants spent a lot of time studying and memorizing their customized coaching papers. Before getting off the ship, attorneys typically would suggest that they destroy the coaching papers before they are seized by immigration inspectors. In addition to the history of Chinese immigration and how it pertains to Southern California, Another preservation priority is the history of Los Angeles Chinatowns. Uh, and this is right after the much older uh, old Chinatown was partially demolished to make way for Union Station in the 1930s. Peter Suhu, who was a Chinese American engineer working for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, devoted years gathering the necess necessary funding and Chinese American merchants and professionals that led to the creation of the first planned Chinatown here in North America a new Chinatown that was entirely owned and operated by Chinese Americans. This is perhaps one of the best demonstrations of Chinese American agency during the exclusion era when governments actively sought ways to marginalize the Chinese. And now that I've given you a broad overview of Chinese American history before and during the exclusion era, let's turn our attention to the history of the C family, which is the subject of Lisa's book on Gold Mountain. Hi, Lisa. Hi, yes, so um, when I was a little girl, I used to spend a lot of time with my uh, the Chinese side of my family in our family store in Los Angeles, Chinatown. This was such a special place. China City was supposed to be this authentic Chinese city. It was one square block surrounded by a miniature Great Wall, and inside it was it was built out of the leftover sets from the filming of The Good Earth and other movies like that. And it, there, it was plagued by a series of fires and eventually closed. But one building remained of the original China City. And this is where my family store, the Sui Wen Company, was when I was a little girl. And so inside, it, it had this sort of central hallway. And then along the sides were these little rooms that had all these upturned eaves and other Chinese architectural elements that had once been shops in China City. But all of this now was for our family store and it was just packed with stuff. And uh, what I would say is at the end of the day, 
Um, this was a family business. Everybody would gather together. They'd have a drink. They'd have a snack. And they would tell stories about the family. And that's when I first started hearing stories about my great-grandfather, Fong Si, and how he came here. Yeah, to Los Angeles, very specifically. I see. I see. Um, and I also wanted to to ask about you. So, so I, in reading your book, one of the, the things that I like the most is that you often mention food in, in in your writings. You know, so so we're talking about uh, the the roasted pork shop that was right next door. You talk about you know cooking rice and using your your hand to measure the, the amount of water that goes into it. You talk about the butcher and the lap chung. Uh, so so why do you think food plays such an important role in in, in describing what life was like back then? Well, I think food plays an important role for all of us. And, uh, you know, Thanksgiving is coming up. I remember a few years ago reading an article from an anthropologist, I think it was, who said that they can tell um, just by looking at people's stuffing where they're from, you know, not just regionally in the United States, the South or the, uh, you know, New England, um, but also where, where your country of origin is. And so, you know, for our family in our um, stuffing, we'd have lapchung, which is a kind of sausage. We'd have, um, you know, black mushrooms. We'd have water chestnuts. And so I, I, I feel that um, food is something that when we come to this country as immigrants, it's something that we bring with us, but it's also something that generations later can stay in your family. It's part of how you honor your family's past, your family's culture. Um, so what can you tell us about Fonsi as a young man back in the 1880s? Right, so um, it was actually his father, my great-great-grandfather, who first came to the United States. He came to work on the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. I like to think of this man as one of the original deadbeat dads who were supposed to come here, work hard, save up your money, and send it back home to China, but not my great-great-grandfather. He had a fondness for <clears throat> women and gambling. And so as a result, he didn't send money home. And his wife, my great-great-grandmother, was so poor that she used to carry people on her back from village to village to earn money to support her children. And finally, some people took pity on her and lent my great-grandfather, who was only 14 years old, the money to come to the United States, what the Chinese called the Gold Mountain. And uh, he did find his father, who by that time was working in Sacramento, said, you know, Dad, you're a bum, go home. And he did. And my great-grandfather stayed and really did a lot of the jobs that immigrants do even today. He washed dishes in restaurants. He worked in the fields. He swept up in factories. But by the time he was 30, and that's about the age he is here, I would suspect, he already had his first business. Hmm, and I'm just wondering how I'm going to say this right now, that made um, uh, underwear for ladies of the night, what we called in our family fancy underwear for fancy ladies. That is, that is one of my favorite slogans ever, uh, fancy underwears for fancy ladies. Yes, and it and, is one of the, the um, pieces in the opera that I, maybe we'll talk about that later. So, so, so how did Fancy transition from selling you know, ladies' underwears into becoming one of the most prominent Asian antique merchants here right. on the West Coast? Well, one day a woman walked into his store who I think of as being quintessentially American, Pisces family had uh, come across the country in a covered wagon on the Oregon Trail. 
her parents died when she was quite young. She was raised by brothers who were reputed to be quite cruel to her. When she was 18, she ran away from home, couldn't afford San Francisco, ended up in Sacramento. And, you know, it wasn't like it is today, where if you're a young woman on your own and worse comes to worse, you could, I don't know, go work at Starbucks or something. But she didn't have any opportunities and no one would hire her. And one day she did go into my great grandfather's shop and um, he hired her to sell again the fancy underwear. One thing led to another and they decided to get married. But I use this term very loosely because it was against the law here in California for Chinese down to a quarter to marry white people uh, until 1948 against the law for Chinese also down to a quarter to own property in this state. And of course, against the law at the federal level for Chinese to become naturalized citizens. So what these two people did was they went to a lawyer who drew up a contract between two people as though they were forming a partnership. And it, they weren't married very long before they decided to move down to Los Angeles. They saw this as a place of opportunity that they felt it might be a little um, freer, a little more open. We had had a terrible massacre in Los Angeles. Chinatown had targeted the Chinese. And as a result of that, uh, I think that the city as a whole, you know, was trying to erase this really bad thing that had happened. And so actually was a little more welcoming than other cities, especially in the West. And so once they got here, they stayed in the underwear business for a while, gradually curios, and finally into antiques. And a lot of this really came from my great-grandmother, who just had, as people would always describe about her, you know, this sort of eye for business, this eye for how to move forward and, and think more broadly than, you know, underwear or curios. So after Fancy and Taisi decided to move down to Los Angeles, did they go straight into Los Angeles Chinatown or did they decide to? No, actually, they were originally, I think, on First Street. Uh, so they were in a couple of different locations before they ended up in um, Chinatown. And they opened their store at 510 Los Angeles Street. Uh, again, for those of you who know Los Angeles, if you have been to Alvera Street, there's the um, bandstand in the middle of the plaza. And on one side, you have Alvera Street. On the other side, you have Pico House. And then on the side that faces Union Station is a kind of vacant piece of land, a park. And it was there, that's Los Angeles Street, that the that Fong Si, si and Tai si had their store. Now, did Fonsi should uh, was he active in different, you know, family associations in different uh, Chinese clubs that within the old Chinatown community? He, no, I I think he saw himself as being quite independent. Uh, he, people did come to him for help. You know, should I should I go into business with this person? Would you lend me some money to open a business? How can I bring my family or my you know, brother or friends from China? How, you know, can you help me with that? Um, but he, he didn't appear to really be involved in those uh, sort of traditional organizations. He, you know, he really he's reputed to be the first Chinese in America to own an automobile. I don't know if that's true or not. 
but he did buy a new car every single year, even though he never learned how to drive. In the early days of automobiles, he used to decorate the car shows with you know, Chinese antiques and things like that. So I, his, his view was more outward than inward towards the, towards the community. They did go back to China in 1901. This, they have their first two children here, Milton and Ray. And uh, this trip must have been pretty amazing for them. Um, Taisi had not known that her husband had a wife already in China. Uh, and she also um, got uh, smallpox when she was there. And so this was a quite hard trip for her. But the family there really did take her in, uh, partly because she had sons. I mean, it's quite remarkable. I think, I believe that by reading the, the book, uh, the family spent about uh, one whole year in China. And part of that trip was to go around uh, different Chinese cities and looking at antique and talking to dealers and then to bring merchandise back to the United States. And that Fonsi stayed behind and, and Taisi brought the kids back to the, the States first. Uh, that's a, really remarkable for them to do that back then. Uh, right. Yeah, and they did have this kind of interesting philosophy about buying things. Uh, there is a big tradition, historic tradition in China of pawn shops. And so sometimes they would go into pawn shops and just say, we'll buy everything. Or they would walk into a village and see a beautiful temple and say, oh, we like your temple, we'll buy it. And all of these things were taken apart, loaded up onto sandpans, brought down rivers, loaded up onto steamships and brought here. And um, the fact that these, these things really ranged from everything small, like um, needles for sewing or baskets to keep your ducks or street vendor carts, all the way up to these really extraordinary ceramics, bronzes, carvings, things from temples is why in the, um, really from the very beginning of the silent film that uh, the store was um, renting out props for uh, movies. And so all the way beginning with Broken Blossoms through um, The Good Earth, Joy, all the way up through the Joy Luck Club. I just, I, about two weekends ago, I was watching uh, uh, a movie on television, Macau, with Robert Mitchum and Rosalind Russell. And there were some objects from the family store that we still have. Wow. So That's the incredible. store, I should say, is, you know, yes, it's a, it's a store, but it's also almost like a museum at this point. And the, the sort of history was that he would put the sort of less expensive things at the front and then if you seem to be a good customer, he'd let you further, further back into the store until if you were really lucky, you'd get all the way to the back where uh, the most precious items were kept. And, and I just wanted to add that FSUI-1 is still, a, a, a still operating today in Pasadena, is that correct? That's right. And then, uh, you know, Fangxi eventually has a second family uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute, but that family also still has a store in, uh, that one is in Los Angeles, Chinatown. So instead of the F. Sui Wen company, it's the F. Sion company. 
the, the partnership, the original partnership list uh, for FSUI 1. So, so what is the significance of a partnership like this? Yeah, so I'm sure many of the people here have heard of Paper Sons, and these were, uh, this was a way to sort of get around some of the immigration laws uh, that you would, you would have a son on paper. But there was another way to come in. So after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 that you mentioned, uh, there, were, there were four categories of people who were still allowed in from China, diplomat, merchant, student, and minister. And of those four categories, there's actually only one you can fake, and that's being a merchant. Now, my great-grandfather was a legitimate merchant, but he also had what, what were referred to as paper, you know, paper partners. So these were people who paid him to be one of his partners, and this allowed them to come in. It allowed them to you know, try to bring in their wives and their children. Now you'll see on this particular list, and, and this was something that he had, uh, had to submit to the government every six months. And sometimes the, there's some names I would say, like on this one, the first four names are always there. One, one is his uh, brother, two of them are brothers. Another one is a um, is like a cousin, uncle, who was part of the family forever. So those first four. But then after that, those are people who were paying him uh, to be, again, paper merchants. They were not paying him $500. So if, he, if we had, if they had been doing that back then, uh, the family would, I, they could have all retired and gone to the south of France or something. But uh, this was just, again, a way to help, help his friends, help people he knew to enter the United States. So again, every six months, he would file a form like this with the US government. Um, some people remained on here year after year, but I have seen versions of this list with as many as 25 partners who six months later have disappeared, you know, are no longer on that list. I mentioned earlier how uh, the Chinese couldn't own property here in the United States. In 1919, the, and this is in the On Gold Mountain Opera, the family does travel back to China uh, on a buying trip. And I think when, when they were there, my great-grandfather really started to think about you know, all the things he couldn't have here. He couldn't have a home. Uh, he couldn't own property. He couldn't become a citizen. All of these things that were barriers to him. But back in China, he realized he could kind of be the big man that he wanted to be. So he, he had a factory for making fireworks, another one uh, for baskets, another one for ceramics. He built the first Western-style hotel in the, in the town close to his home village. And then in his home village, Imtao, which was then very small, today still very small, although kind of subsumed into the uh, larger cities around it, he built the house that he couldn't have here. And what strikes me about this house, and, and of course I have been there to see it, is that in a way, if you think of this 1919, and you compare it to, say, homes in Pasadena or Hancock Park, there, there are certain elements to, that to me remind me of sort of 
uh, Spanish style, you know, Spanish colonial architecture that was so popular here in Southern California in those years. And before we wrap up this portion of the talk, the family portrait happens to be the cover of your book. Right. And I'm glad we're ending with this because I, I will tell you that when they, you know, the problem with having all of that stuff in China was somebody needed to take care of it. And my great grandfather decided that that should be my grandfather, who's the one sitting on Long Si's lap, uh, who was 14 at the time. And Taisi said she did not want to have the family be separated. So she packed up the kids, came back to Los Angeles, and then intercepted a letter about six months later, took it to a letter reader in Chinatown, and learned that her husband, who was in his 60s, had just married a 16-year-old girl. And uh, at that point, the family does separate, although they are just neighbors, <laughs> literally neighbors in Chinatown. But what I have always loved about this photo is that it's really um, this moment, I think, of great happiness. And you see these faces of these children, but also with Taisi, how beautiful and just how, um, not, just, not just happy, but kind of content she is. And so I, I feel like this is a happier place to end than with separation. Right now, we are extremely fortunate and honored to offer a musical interlude featuring Nathan Wong on piano and Shelley Wren on violin.
Uh, thank you for the wonderful performance, Nathan. Um, so I have questions for both you and Lisa. So, so, so even though this was debuted in 2000, but it is still too new to some of us. So can you just uh, talk about how this whole project got started? And what is it like to turn this history book uh, into a operatic performance? I'll, I'll just go first to say that um, I have been uh, going to LA Opera since the very first season uh, that they were here. And um, there was one night that Peter Hemmings, who was then the director of the opera, uh, came up and said, you know, I, I read your book and I think it might make a good opera. And the whole idea was to make something that was really for the community and involve the community. So that we would have singers from LA Opera, some um, part, part of the orchestra would be from LA Opera, but uh, half the orchestra would be music students from Southern California, around Southern California, and that the choirs would be local choirs. And so that's how it started to come. I mean, that was the original vision for it. And, and in fact, that's how it, what it turned in, what it turned out to be. And um, they did us some really beautiful matchmaking, I think, uh, when, when they put Nathan and me together. But Nathan, how do you remember all of that happening? I remember getting a call from LA Opera and saying, would you like to work on, um, on, on an opera that's based on Lisa C's book? And I remember immediately going out to the bookstore and, and getting your book and reading it. And probably the next week or so, we got together at my house. And it was, uh, I think, clicked. And I just couldn't imagine uh, a, a better dream to be able to actually write an opera because an opera, that was my first opera, by the way. And I felt like opera is sort of the synthesis of all the, all the arts put into one. You have the visuals in terms of uh, the scenery, you have the actual people singing, and you also have the music. So it was such a blend of everything that I, that I love in terms of the arts that I just couldn't pass this up. And it was, it's, it's such a great story in and of itself. I also remember sitting there with my mom and telling her about, oh, I'm going to be doing on Gold Mountain. And she got very excited because she said, you know, uh, it, it's all about Chinatown. And I go, yes, it's all about China. And she goes, well, you know, my, your, your dad, my husband, we went to Chinatown. And also my great grandfather, my grandfather and also my great grandfather attended USC. So their, their stomping ground was pretty much Chinatown at that time. And as you, as you well said, Lisa, it wasn't necessarily the Chinatown that we know and love right now but it was the one on Alameda and First. And I still remember the restaurant called Blue Moon that I would go every weekend um, over there. New Moon. New, New Moon. Moon. Yeah. Yes, New Moon. Every weekend and, uh, and have dim sum there. And that's, I just got so, so excited uh, 20 years ago to be able to be part of this, uh, this endeavor. And I, I, I thank my lucky stars that LA Opera wants to do it again. Great. I was I was just so impressed that you know you were able to incorporate an old Chinese American team back in 2000. You were able to incorporate community members, uh, non-professional musicians, and students. You were way ahead of the game when it comes to diversity initiative back then already. So so congratulations. Well, I think uh, we can thank LA Opera for that because it was really their 
idea and also the commitment to that diversity from the very from the very beginning. Um, and so I wanted to turn our attention to Nathan's music. So, so, so you were able to incorporate different genres of music into this performance. Uh, can you go a little bit into detail and, and, and take us through the process of creating this opera? It was a fascinating experience because it was having to synthesize Western music with Chinese music and it being a Western opera, it's not sung in Chinese, but it's, it's being performed in English, it was quite a challenge because I wanted to make sure that the Chinese side of it was represented. And so uh, with the help of LA Opera, we were able to hire an Arhu player, a Guzang player, uh, and I think a percussionist, a Chinese percussionist. So with these three instruments, I was really trying to, to draw the world of Chinese music into it. And just in terms of the melodies involved, I think the one that we just played, the aria that's sung between uh, Blake and our, our tenor, uh, Fong Si, that was probably the most Western of melodies uh, because most of them, I really tried to base it on the pentatonic scales. Uh, we had something like... <laughs> With that kind of idea of really trying to put uh, Western music along with Chinese music, I was pretty much wanting to limit myself to these, you know, these five notes. And as much as I could try to try to come up with some beautiful melodies, some memorable themes, it, that was really my challenge in creating this opera. And so we are putting on this performance at the Huntington's newly expanded Chinese garden. So obviously the stage will be different, it will be an outdoor setting. And you will, instead of having a stage, you're gonna have this classical Chinese scholar's garden as your backdrop. Um, how would that change the show, uh, the performance uh, in a new setting like that? Well, from a musical standpoint, it changes quite a bit in terms of acoustics. Uh, we have to make sure that we're going to be heard uh, well enough to be able to also uh, uh, be underneath the singers in terms of the music itself, uh, the, the, the orchestra and the Chinese instruments. And we have to obviously blend in with the vocalists. And uh, it'll be a very, very interesting venture because we want to make sure that everybody gets that thrill of hearing an opera outdoors. And to be able to synthesize so many vocalists and and the orchestra. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And can I add too that I, I actually think that that environment uh, will be really powerful to have this the Chinese scholars garden right there which is so beautiful but you know it is set in Southern California. I mean what I love when I'm in the Chinese garden is that you have you know the beautiful um, traditional Chinese architecture, the traditional gardens, but all you have to do is look up and around you and you see the San Gabriel Mountains and you're so clearly still in Southern California. And, and of course, this is where they came to Southern California and that environment um, actually 
sort of brings, to me, sort of brings you closer to the time period of the opera. Uh, so, Lisa, so I wanted also wanted to ask you about, you know, the, the page to stage process. So, so, so obviously you were heavily involved in this project as well, too. And so, uh, and, and adapting a book, a thick book uh, like Don't Go Mountain into a performance was never easy. Uh, so, so how do you decide what to uh, include uh, as part of this opera performance? Right. I mean, in the book, it's what the subtitle is, The Hundred Year Odyssey of My Chinese American Family. We couldn't cover a hundred years. <laughs> and so I think one of the big challenges from the, from the beginning was to try to figure out how to narrow the story. And Nathan and I, uh, we also had a director, Andrew. Uh, Andrew Tao. Yeah, Tao. My brain just went blank there for a second. And um, who really helped the two of us really helped to focus in on the story. And what we did decide was to really focus on the love story between Huang Xi and Tai Xi. Um, but also that immigrant immigrant experience, and so we you know, we do start with Fong Si as a young boy, as a fourteen year old boy, first coming here, and do have the, the building of the transcontinental railroad. But pretty soon you get to Sacramento and that that special shop <laughs> where where Tysi makes her appearance. But but at the heart, it is a love story, and of course, the best operas are love stories. Also, can I add uh, that because Lisa pointed out that it's a hundred span, hundred years span, uh, we were able to cover a lot of the time period. Uh, so, for instance, the melody that I just played. There was a time when in the opera it becomes a jazz piece, if you remember, Lisa. At least I was able to have a lot of fun playing the musical melodies and transforming them to the period of the, of the time that uh, we're trying to reflect in the piece. Lisa and Nathan, do you have anything else you wanted to add before we move on to the next stage? Just very quickly for me, which was this was such an incredible experience to actually work with Nathan. So often we just sat together on his piano bench and I really learned so much uh, in ways that have helped me with my regular writing. So, you know, with opera, with music, you're telling a story through the emotion of music. And I really tried to carry that uh, into, into the writing of my novels ever since. And I, for people who've read my books, I think you see a real division of of pre on Gold Mountain and post on Gold Mountain, because I did carry that idea again of the of the pure emotion of music as a way to tell a story. That's interesting because I actually learned a lot in sitting there with Lisa and putting her lyrics into into opera, because uh, un unlike writing a pop song or any kind of structured piece. Opera is very free-flowing, if you think about it, because uh, you know, I don't, did we ever break into uh, a spoken word? 
maybe I think there's just one, two, line, one line, one line, line yes. like everything else. Yes, everything else was sung. So it was it was basically up to me to make sure that all of it was being sung and to be vocalized in terms of having a melody. And it made me very, very aware what places needed to be emphasized through song versus recitative. And uh, I think that's, that took a large, large part of our sitting there, Lisa, figuring out what do we want to emphasize? Do we want to emphasize the, you know, the underwear scene, which we did, <laughs> to the delight, I think, of many. And at the same time, what were the other places that we really wanted to bring out and highlight? And because as we said, it's such a great and rich story. And there's so many stories to be told in this opera. We really had to pick and choose. And I think I learned a lesson in terms of, of the importance of trying to make sure that you emphasize the right places. been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>